We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How we doing, Panthers fans? A little pulse check time here. The Roar Podcast is back despite the losing, despite the perceived and maybe real turmoil with this franchise right now. We are back with you on Blue Wire this week for a doubleheader, the first of two episodes to get you primed and ready for Dallas, Carolina coming up this weekend. In today's episode, it's mailbag time. You've got questions. I'm going to try to give you some answers, and then tomorrow, get this, Billy Marshall and I are back together. So look for a Friday edition tomorrow. Today's edition, of course, is sponsored by our friends at PrizePicks, prizepicks.com. Got a lot to get to. You've been hanging in there with us for four seasons now. Hard to believe Billy and I have been doing this podcast with Blue Wire. This is our fourth season, and it's certainly an interesting time. No shortage of topics in the Queen City to get to, so let's dive into it. We're going to look back a little bit at what happened on a micro level in this Chicago game, uh, which is now a week old as we come to you live on a Thursday here. And there's honestly a lot of uh, news and conversation, as you might imagine right now, within leaked circles about the decision that Frank Reich has made to uh, go back to his own dinner menu, if you will. Uh, You remember he gave Thomas Brown a very emotional uh, speech and and game ball uh, back when Brown was given the reins before the Houston game in terms of the play-calling responsibilities. And now Coach Reich has decided uh, in a statement this week, uh, earlier in the week in a press conference to us, that uh, he's going to take back the dinner menu, so to speak, and not so many words. Some audio to share with you from Coach Reich here in a minute as we come to you, uh, like I said, on a Thursday in advance of a big-time game Uh, for a lot of reasons for this Panthers team, for a lot of people in that building. We'll give you some context on what all this means here, not only for you as the fan, but for these highly paid professionals, the players, the coaches, all of them, who are doing their jobs the best they can. I get it. Are there some cracks in the foundation? Is there a possible change on the horizon? We saw the trade deadline come and go, and nothing major happened at Mint Street. Uh, We have seen uh, this team lose now two consecutive games in which the offense has uh, been death by 40,000 paper cuts and has yet to produce anything in terms of explosion. Pass protection has been a little better looking at that Chicago tape, but still a lot of pressures on the interior part of the line. It's not sustainable. The run blocking is uh, next to the worst in the league, I would say, if not the worst. You're getting limited contributions from some of the guys you expected this season, such as DJ Chark, Miles Sanders, and others. And I know they're all fighting hard right now, and they're all pros. But this is a performance business. 
as it is for Frank Reich. He opened up his press conference by giving us some perspective into the decision that he made in taking the play calling duties back from offensive coordinator Thomas Brown. I am going to resume the play calling duties. This is not about Thomas. This is about me. It's about the team. Um, I'm in the position I'm in because of years of offense, being a, a successful offensive coordinator and play caller. Um, we have eight games left, and I just want to give my attention and everything I can do uh, and everything I can bring to bear to help the offense you know, take a next step. It'll still be collaborative. Thomas is still running the show as far as the offense and all the install meetings and game planning. He's still right at the center. He and I working together uh, like we've been all year. So uh, I trust Thomas more than anybody, um, and he's helped me become a better coach and a better man. So this isn't about that. This is about the team. This is about us all playing the role that we think can help us these last eight games. That's Frank Reich, the head coach of the Panthers, issuing a statement at the beginning of a press conference earlier this week that he will be calling plays. Our good friend Joe Person from The Athletic followed up about the perception of flipping back to the play-calling duties so soon after handing it over to Thomas Brown. Here's what Reich had to say. No, I understand. And, you know, I understand what's going to be said and how it may appear to some. Um, nothing I can do about that. You know, uh, as I've said from the beginning, the whole process is pretty collaborative anyway. And I guess the way I look at it, you know, in this league, it's a game of inches. It's a game of, um, you know, small increments. If you can find ways to get 1% better here, 1% better there. And if, you know, what if my experience, um, if I, th I would, I just won't be able to live with myself if I didn't bring every ounce of that to bear on these last eight games. That's that's how I feel. Interesting comments there that we'll get to in a little bit here on the show. Uh, person also followed up regarding the perception around the league, fair or unfair, that this move somehow impacts Thomas Brown's future career track yeah no i appreciate you asking that question joe because this should have zero impact on thomas's uh career arc it's a three <laughs> first of all anybody who knows thomas knows he's brilliant okay and that he's great leader alpha male um fast on his feet um and so this is a three-game sample size i mean on a team on a team and on an offense that's been struggling you know what, what was he supposed you know i mean was it supposed to be magic? You know, his first time calling in three games, were we supposed to, you know, so this this will have little or no impact on Thomas's long-term trajectory. He's too good of a coach, person, the whole deal. And Joe wasn't done there. No, Joe came back with one more good follow-up here regarding an earlier question in which Frank said, hey, it wasn't like he was going to work magic, Thomas Brown here. And uh, here's Joe's follow-up on that and Frank's response to said question. If you say that he wasn't going to be able to do magic. Then why did you give it to him in the first place? Um, because I've always had this vision that, you know, when I came here, like I mentioned to you guys in the first place, that even though it's always been in my blood to be a play caller, that in this second time around, there's many successful coaches who don't call it. And I've talked to those coaches about what that experience is like, you know, to be able to manage other things and, and devote more energy to other places. And, um, you know, and I said, I need to try that. I need to, I need to try that. You know, Mr. Tepper was on board. You know, I told him what I was going to do, and he was on board with that. He certainly understands and appreciated that model. Um, 
And as I said, I, I always thought it would be when it was with Thomas. I thought, hey, because just because of how smart and how good he, he was and the impression he made on me and our staff and our players, I thought I'll do it during the bye. Um, but before the season, I, you know, I, I may, you know, I thought, well, it might be a year, you know, it might take a year. So, um, yeah, that's that's where it's all at. So there you have it, the Frank Reich perspective. Here's Thomas Brown Thursday responding to some of the questions that were undoubtedly coming from those covering the team, opening up his press conference by very strongly stating that no matter what the circumstances are, he's here to work. One thing a leader does not do is tuck his tail between his legs and find ways to run and hide from conflict or adversity. To me, it's the exact opposite. Stand tall, keep chopping wood, you find ways to fix problems and help people. That's what it's about. And so here we are moving forward, focus on the Cowboys. Um, the overall product offensively has not been good enough all year. And as a competitor, that pisses me off. Uh, but the reality is we have to do a better job as coaches of coaching our players, demanding more to put these guys in better spots to have a better product on game day. And from a player standpoint, we have opportunities on game day to make plays, we got to make it, right? So I'm sure there'll be a bunch of questions. It's not about me, not about Frank. Uh, I have a job to do. I'm committed to that job, always been committed to that job, and folks are trying to help our team uh, be in the best spot to win football game. So there it is, the perspectives of Frank Reich, who announced earlier this week that play-calling duties will go back into his own hands moving forward, starting with Dallas this weekend. And the perspective of Thomas Brown, who was asked on Thursday, uh, not even asked, he came out and just uh, made the opening statement that you just heard. Very strong statement. Obviously, a man who knows the value of proper messaging, taking accountability, but also understanding that uh, with a firm hand and a firm voice, he's responsible for the installation of this offense in large part. He's still highly responsible for the execution of this offense. Uh, this from a former scout uh, in the NFL that I know well, that knows Thomas Brown very well. I love Thomas Brown. We worked together at Chattanooga. He knows ball, and he would be fine calling plays. I just think Frank is maybe getting a little pressure from those at the top. And uh, there's some other thoughts that uh, this scout that I've known for a long time that you guys would certainly respect his opinion. I promise you that. Would, uh, would reveal to me uh, throughout the course of our conversation yesterday, and I'll share some thoughts with you on that later in the show. Look, here's the thing. We had Mike Kay from the Charlotte Observer on with us uh, on my station down here in Greenville, Fox Sports, Upstate, iHeartRadio, and Mike covers the Panthers. We mentioned Joe Person earlier. Those are two of the best as long as uh, we're talking about some of the best in the business. In fact, I think you're in good hands right now with those who cover the team. You've got Alex over there at the Observer as well. Uh, Sheena does a great job, as well as Vashti, David Newton. Uh, hey, you know, a lot of people think David Newton is, is not that great. I personally love David since I've gotten to know him. That's neither here nor there. Let's get back on the topic at hand. Oh, boy, I probably just started a Twitter firestorm there. I'll give David Newton a break, man. He's good people. Um, and if I missed anybody there, just please forgive me, okay? I've got three kids. My wife was just in the hospital. This team is one and eight, so just please Kiss my fat ass if I miss somebody. You know I love you. Nick Carboni, Mike Salardi, all of you. You're great. All right, let's get back to the topic at hand. This Panthers offense. The conversation Mike and I had about this on the radio, and, you know, Mike has written about this. Joe Person wrote a very strong column about this. 
essentially saying in the headline and in the, the story itself is worth the subscription, as all of his are, that uh, Frank Reich did Thomas Brown dirty. And you heard the comments there. We wanted to give you the full context of what Frank Reich had to say in Thomas Brown's response. A lot of what's going on is behind closed doors, of course, as it is always the case in the NFL. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters with this organization right now, it's twofold. Number one, getting the entire operation on all three phases in sync to where not only they're starting to play winning football down the stretch here, but they're playing complementary football, which they have yet to do much at all this season, for this number one overall pick, Bryce Young, who I still look at on tape, and I've got thoughts on him, and I know you've got a bevy of questions in this week's mailbag that we're going to get to on Bryce. But my thought on this is, did Thomas Brown truly have the proper setup to be successful in this? Uh, I don't think the scheme itself and others such as Josh Norris from Underdog Fantasy, who has been uh, in league circles for a long time, and I respect his opinion a ton. And when I talk to folks around the league behind the scenes that have either scouted or coached in this league or even played in it, you get the same common thread when it comes to this offensive structure, which is Frank Reich's offense. And I respect the hell out of Frank Reich. I've been very clear about this. I think his messaging has been very good. I think his leadership is very good. Now, this may be perceived by many, and I think you would be probably very fair to perceive it as such as a step back in the leadership department, taking away play-calling duties from a coordinator who, by the way, this needs to be noted because it's part of the conversation around the league, one of the few African-American play-callers in the business. And regardless of the early returns on the results, those are hard positions for minorities to get because of a long-standing tradition of offensive guys who are pass game specialists, so to speak, at least that stupid perception out there, are the ones you hire, the hot young offensive coordinator, the, the McVay tree. And some of those guys have been tremendous. But yeah, there is something to be said for the step back that this possibly puts in the way of Thomas Brown in terms of perception. I think some smart people around league circles understand what Brown is dealing with right now. And I also think that Frank Reich doesn't have a malicious bone in his body. His statement earlier, back to the point of this was my plan all along. And look, we talked with Frank at nauseam about this in the early portion of the preseason during training camp. Uh, I had the good fortune to be in there for many of these press conferences. I'll certainly be there this week for Dallas. And I'd like to focus on other issues besides who's holding the denier menu and calling the plays, because really this is a multifaceted problem with this offense. You saw the results with Brown, and we're going to get in a deep dive about the stats, Reich versus Brown. That's a bad exercise because it's a small sample size for Brown and even for Reich. But structurally, this offense lacks answers for the quarterback. What you want to do as an OC, as a play designer, as a staff collectively, is to give your quarterback as many answers and as few questions as possible when he comes to the line of scrimmage, when he even breaks the huddle. And that's been one of the fundamental early tenure failures. Now, there's time to make up for this. That's why we grade these things in chunks. But so far through the halfway point of the season, they have not passed that test. Everybody has a hand in that. The quarterback has to take ownership, and he has. He's been accountable. Words mean very little after a while. 
And I think that's where fans are getting a little pissed off, and I get it. Mad Rule, certainly his messaging, I think, pissed fans off more than usual uh, because his messaging was terrible. His coaching was equally bad, and some of the knee-jerk reaction decisions he made left fans and those in the media, and especially those in that locker room, I'm certain of this, and even guys around the league, scratching their head as to why this is the head coach and why does he continue to shoot himself in the foot with rotating quarterbacks. That's the Matt Rule era. What you didn't want to see moving into this era was the offense looking completely lost. And at times they have. And at other times, they don't look lost. They're just running a motionless, static system that includes the following. Number one, a rotation of your guards in the early portion of the season that was highly detrimental, not only to Bryce in terms of just pure dropbacks, but also in the run game. Some of the cuts we showed you earlier on film at One Panther Place, they go back to that Seattle game, a team that you should be able to run on, a team this uh, Panthers team did run on last year. I know every season is different, but some of the run blocking in that game, and I know they're getting Chandler Zavala back, and I'm hoping not only is he feeling better from this neck injury he sustained in Detroit, I'm glad he's back on the field, but can he improve in that department? It's not just the players. They released Calvin Throckmorton this week. I believe they waved him, actually, and the Titans picked him up. And look, he stepped in and did what he could. But they were missing Christensen and missing Corbett early on. Bozeman, who I like a lot, was a great fit for power scheme, under center, a little bit of misdirection game. He he was the center for Lamar Jackson for quite a while there in Baltimore. He was in the Greg Roman offense. And you saw last year when you could start on early downs and start under center with 12 personnel, even a little bit of 21-22 personnel with an occasional lead blocker to get a little bit of movement going at the line of scrimmage. That's what helped them in that game against Tampa last year when they won at home. It certainly helped them on the road against Seattle, especially in the middle chunk of that game when they needed to keep moving the ball and working the clock. It helped them tremendously with that big win they had on Christmas Eve against Detroit. I know that Detroit run defense was not at the level they're at now, but still against an NFL team to run for that many yards set a franchise record, was exceptional. I've talked with the same scout I mentioned earlier, uh, and there's a couple of scouts I've talked to about Akeem Aquanu, who, by the way, his PFF grade and the tape does indicate that that last game against the Bears, although there were a ton of quarterback pressures, Icky did have a somewhat better performance at left tackle. He is a very good run blocker. This gets back to an earlier point that Frank Reich made when he was asked about this, I believe earlier this week, about their personnel sets. And Frank said something interesting, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he was very transparent about the fact that they are an 11 personnel team. I believe they lead the league in 11 personnel usage right now, which for those who are nerds like me, I'm sorry, that's three wide, one running back, one tight end. The tight end has been a carousel as well, and now you've got Hayden Hurst in the concussion protocol. Trimble has been, I believe, underutilized, in my opinion, although he's caught a touchdown pass. One of the uh, eight touchdown passes uh, served up from Bryce Young this year. You've also got a situation where you're that static on offense when you're that predictable in terms of not only your personnel packages, but your lack of ability to create any sort of misdirection or motion or free releases. There's a problem right there. 
the secondary problem and maybe the most important problem in terms of the receiving core is as much as I like Adam Thielen, and he serves a purpose. We showed you this on tape going back to last season. He's had 30 receiving touchdowns coming into the season over his past three seasons. That's good stuff. That's good production. That's complimentary production at the wide receiver position, which is in the slot, which is where he's playing, I guess, plus 80-plus percent of his snaps this season. And I don't blame them for that. Where they have fallen short, and if you look around the league and you see maybe with the exception of Stroud, and I will talk about Stroud in this show, they're scheming things up beautifully, and he's playing better than I could have imagined earlier this season. So there's my C.J. Stroud perspective. But for the most part, when you look at the best quarterbacks in the league, and this is not a full-throated defense of Bryce Young on this show. That's not what we're doing. I'll get to him in a minute. But your separators on the perimeter are who? Who do you have? Chark was supposed to be a bit of that guy, but he's been banged up, and we certainly knew that was the case coming into this season, that he'd had his share of injuries. I like DJ. I like him as a guy. I like him as a player. I think he can stretch the field. Uh, But he's rarely able to do that while he's dealing with a number of injuries on the season. I like Mingo's physicality, Jonathan Mingo, who they took out of Ole Miss. But he does not get a ton of separation himself. He's physical as hell. He has some, again, just be very careful what I'm saying here. I'm not going to say he's Debo Samuel. He has some of those Anquan Bolden Samuel traits with his physicality, but he's not in a place to showcase that right now because he's not in a system that allows you more than a couple of seconds to get through your reads. And the quarterback, who is developing some bad habits over the past couple of weeks because of things that are, quite frankly, out of his control, is misfiring on a couple of these shots down the field to Mingo, I think. There's a couple that Mingo probably could have had with better separation, but we can parse that all day long. Terrace Marshall, they tried to reportedly trade him at the trade deadline. They gave him permission to seek a trade. I think when you understand you put on the tape with Marshall, he's a big physical box-out type of guy that doesn't have a lot of separation ability as well. And it's not just about pure speed. It's not about putting the Arizona Cardinals receivers out there who are all like 5'10 and under and could run four threes and just running you know, all verts. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the ability to separate. Their best separator right now is Thielen. And I know our good friend J.T. O'Sullivan has had a bit of a ongoing, it's a one-way beef with 19, as he calls him. And the tape doesn't lie. Look, at this age, I didn't expect Thielen to be a fast receiver getting separation, but he's crafty what he needs to be, and he's certainly been better than a lot of people on this team this year in terms of productivity. So I understand JT's perspective, and he knows more about playing the quarterback position and analyzing the quarterback tape than most people on the planet. So I understand where he's coming from. They had Demir Bird at training camp, and he got hurt, and I think that could have been a valuable piece. But again, it's not just about straight line speed. It's about the ability to run the precise routes. And what's fundamental here, too, it doesn't get talked about enough, is the fact that, you know, Frank said, we're 11 personnel, we're in gun, we're in pistol sometimes. Rarely are they under center. Rarely do you find them in 21 personnel. I'm sorry, uh, 12 personnel. You certainly don't see them in 21 personnel. That's a fullback and a running back and two wide. Uh, that's going back to the John Fox days, and I'm, I'm certain there are a few teams out there like the 49ers as well as the Dolphins who still see that as a staple of their offense, but the Panthers have not and will not see it that way under Reich because he has a very, uh, he has a very large conviction, if you will, on what his offense should look like. And look, he had success in Indy with that. I was looking at some people who cover the Colts, and in response to 
some of the late season, I think Josh Norris pointed out uh, this fact, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but last season with Frank's offense when it went south in Indy with Matt Ryan, uh, it was the same type of problem in terms of what felt like a static attack. No motion, no misdirection, lack of personnel diversity. Joe Brady, by the way, who just got the <laughs> it's all for a circle. It's crazy. The the pup the, the Buffalo pipeline is just uh off the chain. Joe Brady's the new OC with the Bills. And uh, of course Ken Dorsey, who interviewed for this job in Carolina, is uh out of a job right now. And I wish the best to Ken because he's a good dude and he did a, a marvelous job, I thought, quarterback uh coaching, if you will, Josh Allen. And he did the same for Cam Newton for years here. I'm not here to debate the Buffalo Bills. I'm here to tell you that one thing I did like about what Joe Brady did before Matt Rule fired him inexplicably on the back end of a bye week, one thing Joe Brady did a nice job of, and it comes very much from the Sean Payton school of NFL offense, was presenting, presentation of personnel. I remember some of the early games in which uh, Darnold had success with the Panthers. Even Bridgewater had some pretty good success. Now, the weapons, I think, were better in terms of separation, but you presented personnel. So let's just look at it this way. If you're coming out and you're in your base 11 personnel almost 90% of the time with very little integration other than the running back uh, room, you're not moving pieces in and out. Occasionally, Mingo will get more snaps than Marshall. In fact, he has been. Occasionally, you'll see like a guy like Michael Strong come in last week who I thought had a great catch on that and a great route, by the way, on that 40-plus yard pass from Young. But one thing Brady would do, and some of the great OCs do this, and I'm not saying Brady is a great OC. I think he had flaws here, too. He and Matt Rule did not see eye to eye from the beginning. I don't know why Rule went in that direction. He went more with the McAdoo approach, who, by the way, was known for 11 personnel, was known for running out of gun, and McAdoo had to alter his approach with Steve Wilkes. I give him a lot of credit for that. But this team is not constructed to run this in the trenches, and I would argue even at receiver at times. Getting back to presentation. I remember some of the early success Joe Brady had, and Sean Payton does this too. You come out with a couple of tight ends. They'd bring, I believe, uh, Ian Thomas out. Uh, who was the second tight end back then? Was it, it wasn't Trimble by then. Was it Manhurt still, maybe? So you'd have a couple of tight ends early in the Joe Brady tenure. You'd come out with two wide, and then you'd have your running back at the time was McCaffrey, who can give you a lot, and they're missing him dearly right now. And I know they had to... They felt like they had to make the trade in a lot of reasons. Uh, behind that were cap-related, but also to accrue the draft capital they felt needed in this grand plan to move up when they felt like they had to, which was last year, to get the quarterback of their choice. So when you present two tight ends, two wide, and a running back, or sometimes they would present like uh, Gio, the, the, the Gio Ricci, the old fullback. Uh, they'd present McCaffrey in the mix as well, and they'd present two tight ends and one wide. So you're thinking to yourself from a defensive personnel perspective, you're going into a base package. Then you split these guys out and do an empty set, usually three by two, sometimes four by one, and you create matchups by keeping some of your speed guys, your craftier route runners, including McCaffrey, by the way, that has to be said, they lack that piece right now. Blackshear can offer you that, but Hubbard still has a lot of work to do, not only in pass protection, but his uh, ability to be a pass catcher on a consistent basis and miles had that early in his career with the eagles and they're just not getting him to a flow the point is when they know what's coming consistently a great example was the colts game 
I, I was not at that game, but I went back and I looked at the tape, and I could see it as it was happening. It's two-prong. In fact, it's three-prong. Number one, lack of diversity with formational presentation. You know you're getting your 11 personnel most of the time. Now, sometimes they'll condense the formations and bring everybody in. Sometimes they will uh, go outside the numbers there with their um, expanded splits. But part of the problem is when you lack some of the fundamental motion concepts, you don't give your quarterback the answers he needs, especially a rookie quarterback, pre-snap to be able to diagnose maybe defensively. That goes back to a larger issue that dates back to week one, communication. Getting the call in in a timely manner and giving Bryce Young an opportunity with, and if I'm looking at the play clock, and I've talked to a coach before about this, 20 seconds should be your exit launch point from the huddle to get to the line of scrimmage. That call should be in with 20. But there were often times where it was 17, 14, 11. You could see Bryce still getting the play out. You could still see Frank uh, communicating with Bryce. And then they moved to Thomas Brown. And I thought the communication was cleaner for the most part. It gave Frank an opportunity to manage the game more globally. And I thought for the most part, he did a pretty decent job of that with the exception of what happened in Chicago late in that game uh, with calling a timeout where he didn't need to. But the larger point here is the inability to create feasible spacing, solid matchups, misdirection. The Colts game was a great example of what they attacked on the other problem this team has, which is a fundamental problem with pass protection. And when you have a quarterback like Bryce Young, and I'll give Pat Kerwin a lot of credit for this. He does a great show on Sirius XM uh, radio. When they were analyzing these quarterbacks preseason and even back to the draft, the one thing that was brought up up about Bryce Young was in the NFL game, things do move faster. And we all get that. Bryce, I think, this whole narrative that started back now about the S2 cognition test being a piece of crap Look, we had the guy from S2 on this show. Billy interviewed him, and I don't think their stance ever was, Bryce is great at this, Stroud sucks at this. Now, the way it was weaponized was out of their control. And they've certainly profited, I'm sure, from the you know proliferation of the, the, the commentary around it. But Bryce's processing has not been the issue. The protection is one of several issues he's facing now. And, and Pat Kerwin had said it best. A two-way go for edge rushers. That's been the case all year. Bryce is not a runner by design. There was never going to be a mesh point read option quarterback run game installed into this offense unless it was situational and maybe short yardage or red zone. And you've seen that. And we predicted that. At least I was on top of that banging that drum. Anthony Richardson is a different guy, okay? Vertical acumen, hell of an arm. Raw prospect, but has the physicality to give you that element. Stroud showed that element in that game, I believe it was against Georgia in the college football playoffs, where he started running. And now you've seen him in that offense. Again, we'll have another show another day about regrets we might have about this draft. I'm not there yet. My window for examining all of this, because I'm going to tell you, and a scout agrees with me on this, we talked about it, it's it's not a Panther scout either, folks. It's a scout who scouted in the league for a long time. It's nearly impossible to give a fair evaluation to Bryce Young right now when you look at the tape. There are things you can look at and point out, and we will in a minute, but you have a two-way go when you have a guy like Bryce, which means if you've got on one side Aiden Hutchinson, on the other side uh, one of their premier rushers uh, in their rotation, 
And in so many other cases, you know that Bryce, especially when they go to empty, when they go to five-man protection, there's a two-way go. There's very little contain. There's no mush rush. There's no real need to be aware and concerned about what guys like Kyler Murray can do to you, what guys like Cam Newton could do to you. And look, Joe Burrow, for all that we talked about, we spoke with Matt Bowen on this show uh, back during the offseason, during the draft process about some of the draft comps. And and Matt, among others, compared uh, Bryce Young's tape in college to what some of he saw with Joe Burrow early in his career. Uh, great timing, great rhythm in his drops, great poise in the pocket, uh, adequate arm strength, tremendous accuracy and placement and anticipation probably as, as good as any quarterback uh, coming out in this draft. But that's all for naught if you have consistent vanilla route concepts like the Hank concept we've talked about. You know, it's the mirrored routes where you've got the the curls and the flats um, that, that are highly predictable. They do run some deep concepts, and there have been times you've seen where Bryce can connect on those. I believe it might have been a smash concept that they ran. I have to go back and look at the tape where Strawn uh, the new receiver from Indy caught that corner route, I would think, and I can look at the tape again, maybe they held the the boundary receiver uh, outside uh, down on a hook or a slant, and they gave a free release and an opportunity for Strawn to get some leverage to the boundary. Again, don't quote me on that. I haven't had a chance to look at the entire Chicago tape, and I guess you can't blame me for that. Hell, my wife was in the hospital. She's good now. But uh, we had a hell of a week at the Ellis House, and the last thing I wanted to do was sit there and watch Bryce Young get his head kicked in um, time and time again against the Bears defense really is just not that great. They're good in the run game. So there's one part of it, too. This is Frank Reich's offense. This is his system. In the middle of the season, you're not going to start changing some of your core concepts. They believe their best chance to develop the run game is out of shotgun and 11 personnel. That's it. You're not going to see. I'd be highly shocked if you see this. The team get under center and become a 12 personnel misdirection wide zone plus some gap scheme run team. They're going to try to run by creating spacing and giving guys like Sanders, Hubbard, and Blackshear opportunities to create their own running lanes as well with some of their uh, escapability and their their agility. But what you've seen again from our friend Miles Sanders, who I, I admire him for the fact that he's come in here and he's been a veteran leader. His play count has gone down significantly. I know that's hard as a veteran who comes from a Super Bowl culture to be facing that reality, but he still is very positive in that locker room, very much a leader, uh, I would say, among some of the guys in that locker room. Now, somebody might have uh, advanced knowledge that that's all a farce, but I've heard him talk about, hey, we've got half the season left. We still haven't played our division opponents. It's out there in front of us, and that's what you need. And he has rarely complained, but the fact is, this is a running back, like so many you see, that had tremendous success in Philly because he played great football, got into a great rhythm with a great offensive line and weapons on the boundary that you had to be accountable for within their run game structure, led by their running back coach, Jeff Stoutland, who is the absolute best in the business, led by Kelsey, who is still probably a top three center in this league, led by overall, I would venture to say, the best offensive line in terms of presenting the run game in the league. Uh, You could name a few others. Cleveland's right up there, but they've been dinged up. But the fact is, to imagine that Sanders was going to come in here and provide similar production without that same offensive line to meet the structure of this offense was fool's gold. 
Now, I'm not going to sit here and cry about the contract. It's not my money. It's not my cap situation. That's for the general manager to figure out. But so far, that signing has not paid dividends at all. And I don't blame players for taking the money. I don't. They need to put him in better situations to do what he does best, which is quick game. The screen game has to be cleaner. Then again, though, you look at this offensive line. This offensive line, to me, with Icky at left tackle, and we'll get to him in a minute, with Bozeman, who has been most successful with quarterbacks, I believe, and you could take Lamar and look at the number of plays he ran under center from shotgun, but in terms of what we're going to be largely misdirection and power concepts with some gap scheme, a little bit of trap game as well, getting things done in short area, instead of having your quarterback in 11 personnel gun with three wide in just pure drops, and you're, you're looking at 30, 40 pass attempts a game, that's not Bozeman's forte. He's not going to be a consistent anchor within this scheme. That's not his fault. I think he's had some great moments on tape this year. But you can tell there's been some inconsistency. I get it. The rotating left guard, right guard situation, look, you can't ask a lot of guys like Throckmorton and Mays and even Zavala in year one, but it has been less than ideal. Corbett comes back, and he's been solid, but one guy doesn't fix it. And at Taylor Moten, look, he, he's continued to be a very good right tackle. It's hard to grade these guys individually, but it's not difficult to look at a guy like Aquana, who did at least how PFF looked at him last week on tape. And again, I've looked at limited tape from that game. But my impression was, okay, against a unit that has Montez Sweat now and a few other guys, sure, his grade was better. I had a conversation earlier with a guy who evaluated Aquanu in detail in advance of the draft for an NFL team, okay? And he said this to me this week, quote, I'm shocked why they haven't moved Icky to guard yet. Um, and he goes on and, and says that uh, the same thing that I was telling you guys during the draft process, you need to have an elite left tackle in this offense, in any offense, especially when you got a rookie quarterback. If you don't have an elite left tackle and you draft one to be that, and you're drafted into a regime that's got a different offensive philosophy that could fit his skill set a little better than what Frank is asking him to do right now, perhaps the best move, and it's a hard pill to swallow perhaps, and this is no knock on Icky, because I said at the draft, I think he could be a dominant left guard. And, and this scout I talk to all the time agrees. He said, yeah, there were conversations around the league about Aquano. If he didn't pan out at left tackle, then he could be an all-pro guard. That's directly from a scout who used to scout these players on the college circuit every single year for years for a prominent NFL team who will remain nameless, by the way, because I don't burn my sources here on the Roar Podcast. But this is a guy I know very well and is a conversation we had at the draft when he was picked. And I said it on this very show. If Aquanu can't consistently provide that balance of pure pass set protection with the element of power running inside, which he gives you the road gritting there, Perhaps it's time to start reevaluating where he needs to be. Maybe it's too early for that. Maybe you give this whole thing, including 
that starting left tackle, which is an investment, by the way, you don't give up on him that soon. But you can still integrate him into the offense. Flipping him with Moten is a no-go. Moten is a right tackle. Moving him out to left after being a right tackle his entire career is a terrible idea. I've heard it suggested. Do not do it. Moten still gives them a lot of value at right tackle. That's where he's at his best. That's where he belongs. I don't think people understand from talking to O-line coaches how hard it is to take a guy who's a right tackle veteran and move him to left tackle. Everything about it, from, from a depth perception issue to an angles issue to just a comfort level issue in terms of what you do best with your hands, your footwork, it all has to be retaught. So I don't like that idea. I think there's a real possibility this team, even though the draft capital isn't there, with their first pick next year, may have to go shopping for another left tackle. Maybe not. Maybe Aquanu gets it done within this. Maybe we get to a point, and this is a hard conversation to have, maybe we get to the point, even though my window for this whole staff that David Tepper put a lot of money into and a lot of time and resources were thrown into this, part of me says I'm still on board with my statement I've made to you guys since day one. I'm not talking about the Matt Rule seven-year plan, not even three years, 24 months for everybody in that building in a place of prominence. Now, if you want to tweak your staff a little bit, I get it. That happens. But I don't think people understood, and my analysis on this team coming into the season was optimistic. I thought seven to eight wins was going to be their, their ceiling. It could still happen, I guess, in theory. They've got to start turning it up a notch and meet the standard that their defense and special teams has met, at least on the offensive side of the ball. But 24 months was my window. Because the one concern I had, and this really struck home when the Jets came to town in Spartanburg and did joint practices, the, the one concern I started to get, and we saw Corbett was out, and we understood that this structure of this scheme Uh, offensively was going to look a lot different than it did the last stretch of last year where the team had success moving the ball, even with Darnold at quarterback, because they had a power element to the run game they no longer have. I like how Chuba runs. I I, I like how all these backs run. But Foreman gave them a, a punch in the run game. And guys like Bozeman were comfortable within that blocking structure. They were comfortable with Sam and uh, PJ and, and the guys under center. And the second half of that season... I was very impressed by how Steve Wilkes and Ben McAdoo, I don't know the backstory to all of it, but apparently there were conversations had about how we're going to operate this offense and let's try to put the ball back on the ground and shorten the game a little bit, but also provide explosion, not only in the run game, but by way of the pass game, by having some semblance of physicality that puts the defense in a bind. Physicality is missing with this offense. It's missing up front. I'm not saying you have to line up in in 22 personnel and run the ball like a crazy man. You don't. But you have to have some semblance of being hard up in the paint, as they say, on the hardwood. And this team, what makes it hard for fans, and as an analyst like yours truly, for years, what did we see in the most successful of seasons? Even though the game has changed and altered a little bit. 2003, we saw the entrance of Stephen Davis. We saw the entrance of Deshaun Foster. We saw guys getting out in space like Donnelly at left guard, who was a dominant run blocker, Jeff Mitchell. Uh, You had Stussy at left tackle. They didn't expose him as much as maybe other coaches would have by keeping tight ends over there. And the tight ends were there to block, like Chris Mangum, Michael Gaines, and others. 
They did a great job playing to their strengths. They drafted Jordan Gross that year. They put him out at right tackle, not left tackle, and that insulated him from some of what could have been some early season struggles for him. That led to the ability with the receivers they had, by the way, didn't hurt they had Moose and Prohl and Agent 89 Steve Smith. That didn't hurt as well. But to have three viable receiving options with diversity within not only their route tree, but their physical traits gave Jake opportunities to hit shot plays and with insulating the quarterback in a run-balanced offense, it's not just about play action, selling play action on the run game. It's about giving your defense, giving your offense, I should say, a physical element the defense has to be aware of and it wears them down. And you see that with good offenses, even those that run, from consistent 11 personnel packages. I'm okay with running this offense out of that personnel set if you have an offensive line that can create better movement and hold up in true pass sets. Without that, you don't have Cam Newton anymore, and they did this with Newton. You understood with Newton's skill set, and I give them a lot of credit, and a lot of people have talked about in the beginning. With Ron Rivera during the lockout year, uh, there were conversations out there around league circles how They probably had some conversations with those at Auburn about some concepts that were Cam Newton-friendly to integrate into the Eric Coriel structure of uh, Chudzinski's offense. And you could see right away, I mean, you talk about a guy that's passing for 400 yards his first two games of the season. I think they were 6-10 and that year, and there were some down moments for Cam. But his extra dimension of being a runner, it's what Richardson's going to provide for the Colts when he's healthy. Um, I think we take that for granted because they had not only that, but they had Jonathan Stewart in the backfield, D'Angelo Williams, who provided uh, a punch not only physically, but also in terms of his ability to get to the boundary. He had one of the best boundary bounce running games I've ever seen from a running back. The ability to vision, cut, and go and get yourself seven yards in otherwise uh, negative territory. Stewart was a bull. And they had Mike Tolbert they brought in in 2012, and he was a bull, and they just ran people in circles with their run schemes. And I give John Matsko a ton of credit for that. Look, I don't dislike James Campen either. A lot of people saying fire Campen. Firing anybody right now is an emotional reaction to um, a growing sentiment that this owner who took over for Jerry Richardson, uh, and look, Richardson left uh, in a lot of disgrace. And uh, I... I Look, look back at Richardson's tenure, and I have a lot of affinity for what that team built around him, but there's no secret based on a lot of the reporting out there that that Jerry was not uh, well-revered by some in that building for a lot of reasons that are well-publicized. Uh, and considering he has just passed on here recently, I don't want to spend more time bashing somebody who we just put in the ground, but it's the fact that Tepper came into this ownership very celebrated. And and Richardson, say what you will about him, the players, a lot of them still look back in reverence. A lot of them attended his funeral service, and a lot of them even in the later years where there were apparently shenanigans going on in that building had a lot of respect for Jerry because he played the game. And in a lot of ways, Jerry, even though some could question a lot of the decisions he made, and certainly he made some terrible decisions, He was not considered to be a guy that was tremendously impatient, maybe to a detriment. But let's think about some of the biggest concerns this franchise had entering the 2018 season. Number one, the NFL shield was at midfield. David Tepper heard you. He fixed that. He put a Panther logo right there. Those are cool little things. 
David Tepper's first season started well. It started well. They were 6-2. and two. Um, Since then, I think his record, look, it's, it hasn't been good. 30-61 and 61 maybe. I'm getting it wrong here, I'm sure. And look, people have said this to me, and, and shout out to the folks at the Carolina Huddle. I love you guys. Mr. Scott and company and, and Jeremy who runs that place, I've been posting there for years as a fan, and I still come around once in a while and we, we chat, but I've had people push back on me that, well, now that you're credentialed and yeah, you do a show for the flagship station, that you're soft. Your coverage is soft. That's just not true. When it's inexplicably bad with this franchise, when there are things that are inexplicable in terms of hiring, the Matt Rule hire to me, I will continue to stand on this rock until eternity, was not prudent. It was certainly different. I applaud Tepper, as I mentioned, for quickly in year three, getting him out of the building, giving him an opportunity to go be a college coach, and congrats to Rule for doing some good things there, helping to turn around things that are going on in Nebraska. To have Steve Wilkes on standby, and I'm not certain completely from my understanding that that was Matt Rule's decision to have Steve Wilkes come into that staff in year three, but to have him on standby was tremendous. To put him in that position to come in instantly and not only clean up the culture within that building, and I'm not saying the culture was toxic or terrible, but it wasn't what we were used to. The big complaint again, mid in, in uh, sorry midfield logo aside, was lack of back-to-back winning seasons. And the sell job on Matt Rule was it's going to take a long time until you see this, but the payoff is going to be sustained success. And I'm pretty data-driven. I'm also a guy who knows football pretty darn well. I know the trajectory of this franchise as well as anybody on this planet. I've been through, as John Fox would say, the deepest and the highest, and I just didn't buy it. Doesn't mean I dislike David Tepper. Doesn't mean I cannot uh, take some time here in my capacity reporting for the team and give an honest assessment. I don't know David Tepper at all. We've never spoken. I think I spoke to him for about five seconds at FanFest in 2019. Now, bear in mind, I'm pretty new to the beat here, but I don't make it my job to cozy up with people, uh, including the owner, and I don't think that's even something anybody would or can do because he is a you know, the third wealthiest owner in the NFL. Um, he is a man that wants to do it his way. You cannot fire an owner. But yes, they had no back-to-back winning seasons in the Richardson uh, administration. They've yet to have a winning season with David Tepper. I do feel that David Tepper hates losing. I don't question that. You know, Pat Kerwin, I, I mentioned him a lot on this show, uh, our good friend from Sirius XM Radio, was an executive for a long time, and I believe he worked with the Jets when Leon Hess was the owner. Now, he worked with Parcells there. He worked with the Jets when I believe Pete Carroll was the coach there. So he has a lot of good perspectives on ownership, what to look for, what to be aware of. And he said something a long time ago that stuck with me. He said, owners need time to learn how to own. You saw this in the early days with the Bills, with the Pagulas. That, uh, and look, there's still some potential controversy out there with, with that franchise right now, but it took hiring Rex Ryan and then going through, I think, uh, some other hires uh, on both sides of the ball and some 
missed draft picks to finally settle in on, okay, Brandon Bean, Sean McDermott, and a solid NFL staff, and let's find a franchise quarterback and start building. Everybody wants everybody fired in Buffalo right now. They're 5-5. Five and five. That feels like 0-10 to them. That's a good place to be. You want to be there. You want to be in a spot where, sort of like the Panthers were in 2016, they made the playoffs four out of five years between 2013 and 2017. 2016 was a down year for a lot of reasons. You can thank Dave Gettleman in large part for what he contributed to that, and the owner has no excuse for what he did there too. Um, but that's where you want to be. You want to be going to the playoffs four out of five years. Back-to-back winning seasons aside, you want to be relevant. And moreover, you want to get your team in a position where you enter the month of December, which is just a couple of short weeks away, and you're in the conversation for viable playoff games. You're playing impactful games. That's my hope for this team. It happened last year, and the Panthers, are, look, in a situation right now where Miles Sanders had talked about this and other players continue to talk about the fact there are divisional games coming up. I would be ridiculous to come on this show with a 1-8 and eight record, with all that's going on with this offense, and say, you know what? There's a real ray of hope here. They can make a push. They had their opportunities the last two weeks. Now, if it happens, because the division lead is 5-5 five and five right now, I can't believe I'm spending this much time talking about playoffs, but it's my show, and them's are my rules. 5-5 five and five leads to the division. The Falcons are imploding right now. They have nothing at quarterback they can rely on. They have Bijan, and they, they give them the ball enough. And, and, you know, their defense is very good, but they leak at times. And you saw that against Arizona. You saw that against the Titans. Uh, the Saints are, are, are not a team that you saw week two against Carolina. They don't scare the crap out of me. They've got problems everywhere. Their car's getting hurt. Um, players are getting in trouble there. And the defense, you know, for all they have on their personnel side, they're leaky as well. And I said this at the beginning, I don't know if I trust Dennis Allen in the same fashion. I said the same thing about Josh McDaniels, not that I'm comparing their character or lack thereof. I'm just saying Dennis Allen's a good dude, but he's yet to be a great head coach or any we're close to a playoff caliber head coach. You would think they have the path, but here comes Tampa right now. They're probably four and five. Baker playing better football. Dave Canales deserves a lot of credit for that. And they rebounded nicely from that heartbreaking loss against C.J. Stroud. So their opportunity to make hay was the last two weeks. The Colts was a completely winnable game. They came in with a bad defense, and their best tackler, Zaire Franklin, was out of this game. Darius Leonard was playing with back issues. Their secondary was depleted. They had Kenny Moore in the slot. Gets back to my point about scheme and what you can do to guard against this offense. If you rush four and you get home with four consistently, meaning Bryce is off his spot and out of his progressions within you know a couple seconds, two or three seconds, and you're back there playing, whether it's cover two, playing some type of zone concept where the DB's eyes are right there on the QB and your back isn't turned, that's euphoric for a defense because you have the two-way go on Bryce in the pass rush. You have protection elements that you can exploit based on tape study. And you've got guys like DeForest Buckner out there on the edge, big old DeForest Buckner defensive tackle playing edge and, and getting pressure consistently. And this happened against the Bears. I know Aquanu's pass grade was up by PFF. I know the pass protection was better. But next-gen stats put out a stat that they had 20 pressures allowed against the Bears. I know they threw the ball over 40 times. But, man, you play zone against this Carolina offense, you sit back. Now, I know it's attempting to jam up and play, you know, cover one, cover zero, which we saw some of that from Flores earlier in the year. But I'm telling you, 
this this Dallas game coming up, and we'll cover it more with Billy tomorrow. They they are going to have to find a way to change their approach or to change their results through some means with the short game and the run game. Maybe it should not getting more carries as a running back. I don't know. But Dallas, the one thing you can do to this team is you can win at home against them. They're not very good on the road, but you have to be able to run the football against Dallas. If Bryce is back there throwing it more than 35 times in this game, I'd be stunned if this game is close. Mark that audio because you never know. That's a little uh, Q&A thought on what's happening here with the Panthers. I'm sure there's a lot more to get to, but it's hard to evaluate any of these guys, I think, um, especially Bryce. Now, it's easy to evaluate some of the receivers, and we went through that. The defense, it just is a standalone conversation here, I think, is doing an admirable job in terms of the field position they've been given in a lot of cases and what they're doing to limit explosive plays. They're limiting explosive plays for the most part, and the offense is not only lacking explosive plays, but by way of what we saw with Indy with pressure with four, Gus Bradley playing cover two, they're giving the defense explosive plays with pick sixes. Shout out to Amir Smith-Marset um, and Raheem Blackshear. Possibly the best one-two punt return, kick return combo we've seen here in a long time. They're getting it done. Uh, Amir, the, the the move he made on that punt return was outstanding. And Blackshear was in on the block, by the way. And Blackshear's done a great job giving the team field position on kick returns. So that part of the game I feel good about. Hecker, you know, there's ups and downs there, but I think he's still one of the best punters in the league. And Sam Franklin playing more on special teams now should help. When we come back, let's get into the mailbag. Coming up tomorrow on the Roar Podcast, Billy and Marshall and I are back together, and we'll walk through the latest injury report for the Panthers uh, as we continue on this Thursday episode of the Roar. But first, a word about our sponsor, Prize Picks. It's the most fun I've had winning up to 25 times my money this football season. You just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. Hey, look, testing my skills on prize picks this football season is the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. If you have the skills, you can turn 10 bucks into 250 bucks with just a few taps. It's simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, enormous selections of players and stat types are what make prize picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Prize Picks offers weekly promotions that can lead to big payouts such as Taco Tuesday. Each Tuesday, Prize Picks discounts select player projections up to 25% to provide even more value. They offer Apple Pay for quick and easy deposits into your accounts this football season. Go to prizepicks.com slash ROAR, R-O-A-R, and use the code ROAR for a first deposit match of up to $100. prizepicks.com slash ROAR, the promo code ROAR, R-O-A-R. Daily fantasy sports made easy with Prize Picks. All right, back we are here on the Roar Podcast, brought to you by Prize Picks right here on Blue Wire. Just another programming alert. Billy Marshall and I are scheduled to record tomorrow for the first time in a few weeks. Billy and I, our schedules are out of alignment as much as my tires are, I'm sure. So all the miles I've been logging, we're looking forward to getting back because I'm sure Billy's got some really uh, insightful and strong opinions on what we have seen so far, not only in the 1-8 and eight record, uh, but some of the offensive woes that have plagued this team, uh, dating back not only to year one, but dating back to the entire uh, regime here. I told you earlier in the show I was going to walk through the Bears game, 
I'm going to refrain from that and save it for Billy. I don't think there's much to glean with me individually here going through that Bears uh, game itself. Uh, to me, there's not a whole lot you can pull from it other than the fact that, hey, situationally at the end of that game, they've got to be better. Uh, they have to create explosive plays. We talked about that. And when you're in a situation where, and I've talked about this with Frank Reich, he almost looks like an actor that doesn't know what to do with his hands when he doesn't call plays. <laughs> I'm not even trying to be a smartass. It looks like that out there. When his whole purpose throughout his coaching career, for the most part, has been having a hand on that play chart, that dinner menu as we call it, and calling the plays into the quarterback. I think the comment he made earlier this week is pretty indicative of how it is. There's there's not a lot of, uh, I don't think there's any coach speaker lies being told here, really. I gave the play calling up. I feel like for the best way forward, I, Frank Reich, have the experience to lead this team back into a better place offensively. On one hand, yes, I understand the point about Thomas Brown potentially being slighted here. I get it, especially with the, the, the sensitivity we've talked about here with the lack of minority offensive coordinators in this league. That is a huge deal. The fact that Reich offered this opportunity up, I don't believe was insincere. I don't believe Reich to be a man that is a snake. I, I don't think he's doing a great job coaching this team right now. I think the structure of his offense is very bad, and it needs to get better in a hurry. I think some of the personnel moves that fall on the front office – did not mesh well with what they needed to do. And the whole conversation in the beginning was, Bryce Young is a point guard. He is Steph Curry. Mike Kay said on my show on Fox Sports Upstate this week, it's like having a point guard throwing the four centers on the wing. It feels that way. Where's the speed? Where's the separation? They need to do better there. But it's also a performance business. And you heard Thomas Brown earlier in the show talk about the fact with a lot of class. And, and you know, look, I'm not here to baby anybody. These guys are all grown men and professionals. They don't need me to pat them on the back. But Thomas Brown's going to continue to come to work. He's got a bright future. He comes from too good of a background and has shown enough of what he can do on his own merits to be a viable head coach in this league. That is going to happen for him. His messaging and his leadership is undoubtedly there. It's not just about what you say. I get that. But he has a firm command on the narrative. So... I really don't want to waste time with you on the Bears game. It was ugly. It was bad. Props to the special teams. I thought they were great in this game, uh, with the exception of uh, Eddie Pinheiro trying his 60-yard field goal at the end when he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, eh, what do you expect? <laughs> it's ain't going to happen. Um, let's go to the mailbag here for our weekly segment here, uh, brought to you by our friends at Prize Picks. We're diving into what's going on in the old mailbag, and I'm going to see how many of these I can answer here. I might save a few for Billy tomorrow. So let's go first and foremost to Jared Feinberg. How you doing, Jared? You can find his work at J-Rod NFL Draft. With how the season has started and with how much the coaching staff and front office has underwhelmed, has your mind changed on the trajectory of the team with Bryce Young at quarterback? No, not at all. Now, I, I did say this earlier, Jared, that I think some bad habits have creeped in a little bit in terms of when the clock speeds up in Bryce's head, and rightfully so, because there have been constant protection issues and the fundamental lack of uh, route concepts that promote separation and the players that fail to separate on their own, it can diminish your ability to play fundamentally sound. But I don't see many opportunities for Bryce to stand tall and make throws that need to be made. I thought there were some chances in the past couple of games for him to hit some guys. He's missed some throws. He has, no doubt about it. But I think folks need to get calibrated to the idea that just because he is 5, uh, 10, 11, 
around 200 pounds, dripping wet, some would say, and lacks the frame that we talk about with guys like Matt Bowen and Greg Cosell and others that could lead to potential injuries. He's held up pretty well in that department considering how many hits he's taken. You still see enough on tape, Jared, I think, for anticipation that uh, – and look, I'm not breaking news here. I, I, what I try to do is get the tape on my own, lock myself in a dark room and watch it um, before I see what guys like J.T. O'Sullivan and, and others out there are putting – because I don't want it to, to taint my analysis. But I think most people are in alignment. I, I'll certainly yield to J.T. on a lot of the quarterback-centric stuff – that I will never understand because I never played the position. But fundamentally, when you look at the tape, the protection stinks. The route concepts are lacking any type of creativity or diversity whatsoever. It's vanilla. The motion's not there. It's static. It's always 11 personnel. It's usually out of gun or pistol. And the run game is bad for a lot of reasons, including the fact that, hey, this line's got to do a better job of getting off the damn ball. And then the backs have got to do a better job when there is daylight hitting it. Hubbard runs hard. I like what he's brought to the table. But if we're sitting here talking about Chuba Hubbard being the bell cow in an offense with a rookie quarterback who needs a running game to insulate him when Sanders was seen as that guy based on not only his contract, but by prior results, it was a bit of fool's gold because of what we had talked about. His success in Philly was amplified in a lot of ways, not only by his own ability to create his own lanes, but Come on, some of the holes they create there in Philly, not only through the just the sheer might of Jeff Stoutland's front five, but also the creativity of their play calling because they have a quarterback that can present a dual threat. It puts guys like Sanders at an advantage, and you have to imagine coming into year one, that's going to be tough. Bryce does not have the ability to run what Jalen does up there. He's too small. I'm not worried about his height in the pocket. They will never run Bryce the way Cam was run, the way Anthony was run, even the way Lamar is run. It, it's not sustainable. He won't make it. That would surprise me. But question for Jared. No, I, to me, Bryce, there's an old adage. I maybe Mike Lombardi had said this or uh, somebody, Cosell's talked about it before, I think. I, I don't want to misquote anybody, but I've heard two or three guys who cover the league for a long time say that 20 games is what you need to fairly evaluate a rookie quarterback. Then you see situations like Josh Dobbs and Geno Smith and others who have fed late bloomers. It's interesting. Uh, this is from Ed, or I'm sorry, F. Ted Atchley, our good friend out there, Ted Atchley 3. Uh, we have one of the lowest percentages of plays with pre-snap motion. Is changing to plays that employ more pre-snap motion something that can be changed mid-season, or do you really need an off-season to implement that kind of change? You can do it, Ted. I think you can sprinkle it in, but I don't think they're going to. And I don't think they're at a point in the season where that part of their playbook, we talked about some of the vanilla stuff we saw preseason. I think by week three or four, some of that would have rolled out gradually for a rookie quarterback by now. So far, we have seen a pretty static offensive approach in terms of lack of motion. And I'm look, I'm not hit, sitting here saying it's it's a fad to say, oh, create motion. All of a sudden, you're you're going to be a great offense. There has to be motion with purpose, and it's all about creating spacing. Uh, free access for receivers, and it, you're living in this triangle-read-mesh-hank land of of concepts that have a purpose, but when you lack the personnel and the ability to create separation within those concepts, and then you lack the offensive line to hold up with pure pass-drop sets 
out of sometimes a five-man protection look, oftentimes five-man protection, it's tough. What changes? Look, I thought maybe what they would have seen, and I know McVay is heavy on 11 personnel in the the Rams side of things, but McVay has had a bevy of looks he's presented over the years, including under center, um, to elevate the run game. I thought Thomas Brown in his time, and look, it's still very early, but I, I thought the offensive line with Campen and Brown and Deuce Staley together would eventually get on the same page in Reich's system, and they would develop a more sustainable run game. Um, I In terms of pre-snap movement, they should do more of it, but I don't know what you can change midseason. Fundamentals are where it's at with this team. If this is what you're going to do, if this is how you're going to align your offense and run your scheme, you need to be better. You need to show that you're better at left tackle, at guards, at center, even at right tackle, as a unit protecting this quarterback on even the most elementary of rushes, twists, stunts. You have to be alert as a running back, and this has been a problem all year in terms of pass protection. Chuba's had good moments there in terms of the chip game, and then he's been overwhelmed in terms of basic blitz pickups. They can't pass the ball this many times. They shouldn't be passing the ball this many times. But this is their offense. And when they've been in close competitive games all year, look, maybe this is just the way they look at it. you got to go through these hard times as a rookie. There's a school of thought that I've had. Frankly, it's crossed my mind, not because I'm greedy for a win here. I'm not thinking about wins and losses necessarily, about this quarterback's progression. Would it be better to let Andy play? Would it be better, not just for Bryce's health, because every time he's getting hit nine, ten times a game, it promotes that opportunity. Or do you take this opportunity to give him the valuable snaps he needs? This is why I don't go to the Andy Dalton side of things. It's tempting. You can draw comparisons to what Mahomes went through early in his career, but that's a dangerous game to play. And I think Bryce, we, we sit here and we cried about it for months, about Matt Rule not giving Brady Christensen, Deontay Brown, and, and other guys, uh, Terrace Marshall, meaningful snaps. It's the quarterback position. It's the number one overall pick, and I know it's not ideal. The scheme has not married with the offensive line personnel, and the routes and those that are running the routes aren't the best they can do. They have nice cap space next year, and Ted, I know I'm going off a little bit here, but to answer your question, no. I don't think they should or can start making drastic changes. Now, you can sprinkle some things in. You get Chenault back in the mix potentially this week. That should help tremendously, but right now, I don't think there's a whole lot you can do to change the overall approach with this team. I saw something come through just a minute ago. Let me give you a, uh, a quick update here. Mike Kay uh, from the Charlotte Observer, one of our good friends, just updated us here. This is about 3.30 on a Thursday. Brian Burns was full again today, and he's out of the concussion protocol, he's told. So that's great news for Brian Burns, who they need desperately on defense to elevate them to that next level. Hayden Hurst concussion, C.J. Henderson concussion did not work today in practice. Uh, Stephon Sullivan's shoulder was held out of practice as well. Um, Bryce Young was added to the injury report on a Thursday, but as Mike K writes here, participated at a full capacity. So take that for what it's worth. I'm sure there's more that will come out on that uh, in the next uh, couple of days here, but uh, I don't think that's going to be a major issue for Bryce Young. Back to the mailbag here, and again, this is coming to you in the middle of an afternoon on Thursday, so more details might uh, come your way. Uh, two growls, one roar. Uh, hey, guys, how you doing? Uh, it has a question here on Twitter. X, whatever we call it now. Got to hear your take on the play-calling shuffle. 
well, go back and rewind the episode. <laughs> no, look, just to summarize, I, I, I'm not going to go nuclear on this issue. I don't think it's the end of the world. I, I do think it was a bad look. The optics aren't great. I think Thomas Brown is a grown-ass man who can handle this. And I think smart people around the league see Thomas Brown, and they've seen him this way by virtue of some of the interests he's garnered around the league for a head coaching spot as a guy who Frank Reich for three weeks giving him play-calling duties and then taking them away should not be a stain on his resume. Um, to me, it would not be. I don't know who in their right mind who evaluates coaches would take that perspective, but I understand the sensitivity about it. I, whether he's a African-American offensive coordinator or not, it's not a good look. Um, but it's especially amplified, and I get some of the the writing that Joe Person did in his article, um, and I'll read you a bit of what Joe had to say here in The Athletic as I have to sign into it first because I am a subscriber to The Athletic. There we go. Uh, Joe wrote a great article about this, um, and he, he had this to say. So if Reich didn't expect any magic after handing the offense to Brown after the bye week, why did he do it in the first place? And we played that clip at the top of the show. Reich said it was something he thought about doing during his second stint as a head coach, though he conceded uh, though conceded, he figured it would be better after a year or so. It was a big deal for Brown, who joined Eric Bieniemy and Brian Johnson as the NFL's only black offensive coordinators calling plays. And that was part of the angle that Joe took in this column, which was very well thought out and written, along with the idea that, hey, look, we don't want to get back into a cycle. And this is me talking here, not Joe. My perspective on this, uh, sir, is that regardless of what you think of Brown or Reich, the the Matt Rule era was defined by indecision and flip-flopping. Now, if there is actual constructive meaning behind this, we're going to find out pretty soon. We're going to find out over the next few months if this is a constructive exercise. Uh, Thomas didn't strike me in his press conference as being overly upset about this, nor should he, because he's a well-paid professional that has everything on the table for him in terms of not only being a well-respected offensive coordinator, I think people understand this shit is not his fault. Some of it's not even Frank's fault. And that's a larger conversation to have about the front office. And I like Scott Fitter on a personal level, and I respect some of the work he's done here. But there has to be an examination of what they do moving forward with how much capital they gave up for Bryce Young, with the process of evaluating Bryce Young, and then what's the next step in terms of acquiring the proper personnel on offense to blend with this coach, his philosophy, and this quarterback, what he needs. They have some cap room, but again, that can be a bit of fool's gold. Matthew Johnson at Matthew J30 writes this, do you think the franchise can turn it around under Tepper? It seems he is trying to be too involved uh, and make football decisions when he shouldn't. What will it take for this team to thrive under an owner that since he just can't get fired? <laughs> I addressed this earlier too, and look, I've been accused of shilling for the team, and that's ridiculous. David Tepper has not had a winning season here, and I know a lot of people want him gone. Um, I actually thought this entire process, if I have to be honest with you, I said this at the time, I commended, at least I, I was respectful of the fact, this process from early portion of last offseason, the hiring process, the draft evaluation process, I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't see David Tepper as somebody who was going to taint um, anything as part of the traveling caravan and examining these quarterbacks. 
at the end of the day, I don't think this was David Tepper saying, hey, the S2 cognition test is great. I want Bryce. Screw all of you. I do think he's involved. I think he's more involved than the last guy was. But I don't think he has a malicious approach to this. I think, like I said about Pat Kerwin, he said this a long time ago, owners have to take time to learn how to own. It's getting a little bit late in the process here. At some point, you need to field a winning team. But do I think that David Tepper is pulling all the strings at the top? Well, it's his team. Do I think that he's telling Scott Fitter who to draft and who not to draft? No, I don't. Do I think fans have a valid concern whenever owners are that involved? Sure, absolutely. And I think the owner of this team would be fair to acknowledge that there have been owners in the past that have been involved in player personnel discussions, and it hasn't gone great. Um, But I don't really have any deep insights into how involved he is. They keep that shit pretty close to the vest over there. But he's certainly not passive. You heard Frank Reich say he won't stand idly by. Uh, he has weekly meetings with the coach. And I, I look, there, there's a lot of approaches out there from ownership perspective. But this question, it's it's a valid one. It's also a bit of a roadblock question because at the end of the day, we can't sit here and speculate on his future. He is the third wealthiest owner in the league. It's his team. This is what it is. It's the ultimate deodorant winning. I'm telling you. They've got to figure out how to win. Chicken or egg, I get it. Is it Tepper's approach that's costing them wins? I think you can make the argument that hiring Matt Rule set them back a little bit. I think you can make the argument that year one of a brand new staff largely unfamiliar with one another here in Carolina, although they have great backgrounds on their own merits, meshing with a general manager they didn't have prior work with on the most part, probably took a little more time than we expected. So come back to me in 24, well, 24, 20, <laughs> 21 months. Come back to me at the end of 2024. There's no reason this team should not be pushing, as Houston and other teams are right now, for a playoff spot this year with this division, but especially next year. And if they're not, and if they invested that draft capital, yeah, you can say some things about this ownership in terms of not necessarily his direct involvement in personal decisions, but his approach going about assembling uh, this staff. And I look, I think that's a very fair assessment. Take it for what it's worth. I'm not in a position to be dishonest with you guys because I'm afraid to lose my press pass. I, somebody got him on the Carolina huddle. I, said, I love you guys so much, but like, John's gone soft since he got his credentials. Check out the episode we did two weeks ago. You tell me how soft it is. <laughs> I've been as hard on this team as anybody, and rightfully so. Um, this is from uh, Jamin. Jamin writes, if Frank Reich was fired before the end of the season, do you think Evero would accept the interim spot? Remember, he denied it in Denver. Uh, that's a long ways out, and I don't even know. I, that That's, to me, a question I haven't even pondered. Um, I don't think Frank is going to get fired midseason. I don't care how bad it gets. Now, mark this audio, too, because anything can happen. I don't think you're going to turn around week 14, week 15, and see Frank Reich fired. There's a lot that's been invested. And I think the best plan still, as frustrated as y'all are, and I get it, is at the end of next year, if this is still not progressing the way it should be, which is the offense is structurally sound, operating at a high level, 
based on what the capital was to get this quarterback into the system, yeah, I think at that point you can pull the plug and start over. You know, I saw some commentary today from Mike Florio. I heard Ross Tucker on Dan Patrick's show. He was asked about where will Bill Belichick be next if he's fired. And Belichick's name was brought up by both Florio and by Ross Tucker as either Washington or Carolina. Um, I've also seen it suggested from Diana Rossini, who I, I love Diana. She's a great reporter for The Athletic, spent a lot of time at ESPN, that maybe Bill O'Brien, not reporting, but speculating that hey, maybe Bill O'Brien, if, if Frank Wright can't fix this, Bill O'Brien's the guy. <sighs> maybe. That's a dangerous road to start chasing them. I'll bring up one last thing, too, before we check out here, because we're going to save the rest of the mailbag for tomorrow's show. Mike and I had this conversation, Mike came from the Charlotte Observer, uh, just the other day on on iHeartRadio. And I asked him point blank, revisiting this, and it's fool's gold to a certain extent because you can't change anything. But I just point blank asked him, based on your reporting, based on what we've all heard, had Ben Johnson, the current offensive coordinator of the Lions, Ben Johnson, Asheville native, doing great things up there with Detroit in their scheme, had Johnson followed through and taken the interview with the Panthers instead of uh, reportedly uh, declining an interview close to the the last minute, from what I understand, do you think he would have been the head coach of the Panthers? And Mike Kay's response to that was, uh, paraphrasing tightly here, it was his job if he wanted it, he believes. And at this point, you have to wonder, at this soon of a juncture, if you fire everybody, who's lining up to take this on? Money talks, I get that, but they just spent a ton. I know the resources are are vast for David Tepper, but just remember that moving forward. That Reich, this was all sold as an opportunity, and I, I bought into it to a large degree, and the story hasn't been fully written yet, but it's been an ugly first few chapters. Um. I know you guys hate when I say this, but hang in there, y'all, and maybe give this one time a little, a bit of time to marinate. Same as I heard from countless of meatheads and mouth breathers several years ago, many of whom still listen to this show, even though they won't admit it, just with some of the nastiest shit thrown my way about questioning Matt Rule's hire, and then the conversation about three years, four years. Show Frank and this staff maybe some of the grace and patience you showed Matt and company back then. Get your expectations in alignment. This is advice, not directions. And understand that with a rookie quarterback, with the personnel challenges relative to what the scheme is and relative to what they are trying to do moving forward, we're probably undersold by many of us who cover the team, present company included. I didn't envision one and eight. They can go 2-8 at eight with a win over Dallas. We'll see how that goes. Ah, this has been the Roar Podcast. I'm John Ellis. Coming up tomorrow, more of your mailbag questions and a special edition as Billy Marshall and I are back together to gripe and also to figure out some answers. We don't know it all, but we try hard. We're brought to you by our friends at Prize Picks, prizepicks.com. Check them out at prizepicks.com backslash Roar and sign up today. For Billy Marshall, I'm John Ellis. This has been the Roar Podcast on Blue Wire. Y'all have a great Thursday, and we'll see you next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.